Our Father, we're thankful again for the salvation that we enjoy through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have sovereignly worked in history, working all things after the counsel of your will, and that you have seen fit in your unfathomable wisdom to bring us to faith in him. We ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to the work of the cross and the expose that this causes of the human heart. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, there's no handout tonight. Uh, will be one next week. Um, it's just that we're going slow and we're, the notes are way ahead of where we are. And there's some stuff here that we want to work through um, and understand what we're doing before we get into some of the deeper problems. Um, <clears throat> we've been working through, of course, the death of Christ. And uh, just to review, um, we have said that, as always, when we look at some specific, the consciousness that we want to have as believers is to remember that when we look at anything, any subject, any topic, any truth, whatever it is, we have to envelop that in a biblical frame of reference. And that goes for the cross of Christ. And we'll see some very bizarre things tonight about how people interpret the cross of Christ uh, because they do not encompass that narrow truth, that specific act, that event, that story, inside the bigger framework. Can't understand the cross of Christ if we don't understand the larger framework. So we've spent time, uh, weeks and weeks, showing how this larger frame of reference that's so necessary to understand the cross depends upon us understanding God's justice. And of all of his attributes, his holiness or his justice or his righteousness, that cluster that theologians refer to as holiness, that refers to that which is in God. It didn't get there by some human legislation. It's part of his character. It was there before any human beings existed. Uh, it will be there for all eternity. God is immutable. He is unchangeable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He always has been holy. He always will be holy. Can't change that. And that means that whatever happens to us as creatures, whatever happens by way of salvation or condemnation, it always hinges on our adjustment to his attributes. God never adjusts to man. Man has to adjust to God. And so his character and his attributes form the reference point. So whatever we say, however we look at the cross, it always demonstrates holiness because God is not going to compromise His holiness in any way, shape, or fashion. Men may desire a psychological gospel. Men may desire uh, therapeutic approaches to life that ignore the holiness of God. But that doesn't make holiness something, God's righteousness or His justice, obsolete. It still remains. And the stubborn fact is that no matter how men try to design a plan of salvation, they have got to, in the final analysis, either pass or flunk the test of does it or does it not conform to the justice of God. There's hundreds of religions on the face of the planet. And we live in a day when everybody wants an equal voice, all opinions are the same, and this is the age of pluralism. 
And so we have to give due respect for the Hottentots and for everyone else that came up with some sort of a religious answer to life. But the point remains is that God's holiness is the standard by which we judge patterns of salvation. So that's why we spent a lot of time developing the biblical idea of justice. And we've noticed some characteristics of that biblical idea of justice. For example, we notice that it's restitutionary, that that's a, a trait of God's justice. He demands that the broken order be restored. He doesn't sit and leave things in a pile of junk. They have to be restored. Now, it's true, in eternity, when he finally separates the good and the evil, there will be an eternal trash heap. But there will also be an eternal city of God. So, it's not true that he, once something fails, he just leaves it in a heap. Restitutionary justice demands that it be fixed, somehow. And then we said that God's justice is aligned in Scripture, of course, with the Messiah. So that was our second concept, that the Messiah of the Old Testament, right from Genesis 3, was linked to God's justice in some way. The Messiah, if he is to be the Messiah, if he is to be the one who delivers, he himself has to deliver by the standards of God's righteousness and his justice. And then we covered, uh, in the last uh, weeks, we've covered the New Testament presentation of the cross. And we've, we've said certain things. We've said at least five things about how the New Testament presents the cross of Christ. The first thing we said is it's presented in the, it's an analogous fulfillment. Or should, that's a bad term. It's presented as an instance of Old Testament criminal law at work. So obviously you have no Old Testament criminal law. And it's in Galatians chapter 3. But the whole passage in Galatians chapter 3 assumes that we understand Deuteronomy 21. And it assumes that we're familiar with Jewish criminal law. Otherwise, we don't even get the point. Nobody can come close to Paul's Galatians 3 unless they understand Hebrew criminal law. And the criminal law said that at capital punishment, when a, when a criminal was executed, his body had to remain on a post, on display as an emblem of God's justice, of God's judgment. So they didn't hide it someplace. They had an execution that was public. It was almost a religious ceremony. And it was done not to, to be gory or gruesome. It was done in order to demonstrate that God's holiness is not going to be compromised. And Jesus Christ on the cross fulfill that pattern because his body was on display. And that said, Paul said, inferred from this, because he was on the cross, he inferred that Jesus Christ, therefore, was, as the Old Testament criminal law code said, cursed of God. And it's a demonstration of holiness. <clears throat> so, there's a practical conclusion to this. How serious do we take God's righteousness and justice? Well, we ought to take it pretty seriously, because if we want a picture of his righteousness and justice, we have to look at what he did to his own son. And that's a picture. So he is not going to compromise. And we better, if we have any lurking ideas about God softens in the New Testament his righteousness and justice, people have that idea, you know. In the Old Testament, God is a cruel God. In the New Testament, he somehow got, got uh, with the program, and now he's a loving God. He's evolved a little bit. 
Yet, it's tr yet, in the New Testament, we present one of the most horrifying examples of his justice. It's the cross of Christ. Nothing's changed. It's still the God who will not be compromised, the God of integrity. Um, we said all further that if you look at the cross of Christ, you notice that it has a unique characteristic. It's the only instance in human history where a man, human being, chose the moment of his own death. Jesus Christ gave up his spirit. That's a phrase that's never found elsewhere in the scripture of a human person dying. It's an absolutely unique phrase reserved to communicate that when Jesus Christ died, he did not die because of the Romans. He did not die because of the Jews. He died because the work was finished. And there was no more reason for him to live. So he chose the moment of his death. A third thing we said is that the cross of Christ changes the basis of condemnation. That prior to the cross of Christ, it was at least theoretically true that people who died in unbelief died under the judgment of their sins. Since the cross of Christ provides an atonement sufficient to cover the sins, then a person who dies in unbelief, this side of the cross, dies because they have not believed. Because had they believed, their personal sins would not have been an issue because they were born by the Savior. So the cross of Christ is a watershed of history. It changes the basis of condemnation. Men are condemned because of failure to trust in the way of salvation. It would be just like in, if you want a picture in Exodus, it would be like if you, we were all Egyptian families and we all had firstborn sons and the angel of death we knew was going to come. If there were no blood on the doors by way of salvation, our sons would die because of the angel of death. But since in the point of the Exodus, there was an escape, what we would have had to have done was identify ourselves by faith with the Jewish people and have blood on the door. Now, since that way of escape came into existence and was offered, why do our firstborn sons die? Is it because of the angel of death or is it because we have forsaken the way of salvation? It's the same with Noah and the ark. Again, judgment, salvation. We're going back to the frame of reference. Remember, each event in the scripture has doctrine with it. And what were the two events of judgment salvation? One was Noah's flood. One was the exodus. Why were people drowned in the flood? Because they weren't in the ark. If there hadn't been an ark, then they would have drowned because of the water. But now there was an ark. They drowned, yeah, from the water, but because there was an ark that they forsook. So the cross of Christ removes one of the arguments for, con for why I'm, you know, I'm being condemned. The fourth principle we said is that the cross is a strategic victory in this larger angelic conflict that goes on down through history, the forces of good and evil in the background that we can't see. But the cross of Christ has repercussions in the unseen realm. And that's reiterated in the New Testament several places. And finally, 
we said the New Testament presents the cross of Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the most solemn, most commemorated Old Testament ceremony, Passover. And the cross fulfills Passover. Now tonight, we want to deal with a problem of unbelief. And we want to examine this unbelief uh, in the cross of Christ because it's the watershed issue in defining orthodox Christianity. Christianity is divided into a modernist liberal approach or the conservative biblical approach. And the watershed of division between those two approaches isn't necessarily eschatology. It's soteriology. It's the issue of what does the cross of Christ accomplish. Every cult, every modernist, every one of the far-out positions differ from the Bible in that they deny what has happened on the cross. So the cross now becomes a critical issue. And so we want to examine, before we go further and deal with the doctrines associated with the cross, we want to look at the unbelief. Um, for those of you who have the, the complete set of notes from this year, if you go, uh, from, and from last year, if you go back on page 29 and page 55, um, you'll see parallel diagrams on page 29 and page 55. We're going to see another one tonight. But I want to take you to the previous examples of this diagram because both of these show the principle that when I envelop the cross in an alien frame of reference, so that instead of looking at it from a biblical point of view, I now look at it from an unbelieving point of view. When I surround the cross with that kind of a frame of reference, or sur surround any of the truths of the Lord Jesus Christ, I wind up with uh, unbelief. On page 29, we drew a diagram of the first, ex uh, first event in Christ's life, which is his birth. And we said, well, what was the issue there? What was the background behind this unbelief? And at that point, we said, if you look at on figure one, page 29, it says that the issue was one's worldview of God, man, and nature. In other words, if people can't think about the creator-creature distinction, okay, they're not going to believe in the virgin birth and the incarnation. How can they? What is the virgin birth and the incarnation all about? It's the creator becoming the creature. Now, how do you think about that if you don't believe in the creator-creature distinction? See? It all fits very logically together. So, those who disbelieve in the incarnation and can't bring themselves to believe in a virgin birth tell us something. In other words, we have to read what's underneath the book cover. What's under the cover here? Unbelief in the virgin birth and the incarnation is an exterior manifestation of an internal unbelief in the creator-creature distinction. That's, that's the real thing that's going on underneath the facade. Now on page 55, we showed the second event in the life of Christ, which was his life as a whole demonstrated in the four Gospels. And we said there... The issue was a people who can't accept the New Testament record, you know, like Time Magazine, U.S. News Report every time before Christmas and Easter, that kind of thing. 
college professors, some of them teaching in Christian colleges, when they can't believe in the New Testament record of the life of Christ, but feel burdened to reconstruct the record into that which was really the Jesus, not the one the church made up. See, the New Testament record is just looked upon as something the Christians wrote about, but not the real Jesus. He's behind the text. Well, they make a distinguishment. Why do they do this? That is an external sign of an internal unbelief. Internal unbelief in what? In a God who speaks. A God who reveals himself. A God who publicly speaks. And by revelation, remember, what we mean is the God who spoke where? What was the great Old Testament event that shows more clearly than all the other events? The God who speaks. Remember? Mount Sinai. Good, good. There is a picture in your mind you want to have whenever the issue of revelation comes up. Whenever it comes up. Why is that? Because God publicly spoke. It wasn't a committee, Joe, John, Paul, and somebody else here, who had internal, they felt in their heart God was speaking. That's private. Mount Sinai was public. You could have taken a tape recording and tape recorded it in Hebrew language. That's what we mean by revelation. We don't, we're not talking about internal thoughts. We're talking about speech that can be heard, that can be shared, simultaneously heard by multiple witnesses. That's what we mean by revelation. Well, people who can't bring themselves to accept the text of the New Testament as a bona fide, infallible record have deep in their heart an unbelief in what? It's an unbelief in a God who speaks. Okay, now tonight, we're going to come to another third diagram. And if you'll turn over to page 85, now we come to the same thing. Here we have now the cross of Christ. And what unbelief is smoked out of the woodwork by people who re-explain the cross of Christ. It's one's view of God's justice. Liberals who cannot bring themselves to believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me, have a problem, not with the Bible, well, they have a problem with the Bible, but they have a problem of unbelief. What did we say when we started the series a year ago? Remember what Jesus said? He said, what do men, who do men say I am? Remember we went back to Mark, started off with that verse, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say this, some say that. And who do you say I am? Jesus required a response, you see? And his presence in history condemns us in this, that it forces out into the open where we stand. That's what John says. The men come not to the light. Why don't they come to the light? Lest their deeds be reproved. Because to come to Christ means we, we come to the table and we confess our unbelief, our sin, and we're drawn to Him. But if we turn away from Christ, we confirm our unbelief. And the cross 
When people say, oh, I, I, you know, Christianity is so narrow, golly. I mean, we've got all these other religions out there. I mean, Confucius was a good man. I mean, how can you Christians be so bigoted to think you're the way, the truth, and the life? Well, there are a couple of men in the congregation who work a lot with high voltage. And one might say, well, gee, John Monius, you know, I mean, why do you, why do you worry about insulators when you deal with high voltage? Well, I mean, isn't that narrow-minded? Those big, thick gloves don't look nice. Why don't you just touch it with your hands? And why are you so narrow-minded to have to have gloves every time you get near this thing? Because it's high voltage there. And why do we get, why do we narrow-minded about the cross? Because we have a holy God. It's very simple. It all fits together. The problem is that people don't see the holiness and righteousness of God. Now we're going to show examples of that, where it started among the Jews and carried on among the Gentiles. Let's turn first to the biblical passage that deals most with the issue of unbelief, Romans chapter 11. Because Paul was constrained in his ministry as a Jew, he was constrained to explain the fact that Israel did not as a nation accept the Messiah. So, if we'll turn to Romans 11... We'll look at what the Apostle is doing with respect to unbelief. He's got to deal with unbelief. And notice he doesn't approach it this way. Now, this is the way modern evangelical Christians would try to approach it. Well, you know, we just didn't use the right technique. Well, we got to, in the church growth movement, we've got to get all the techniques in place. We gotta, we're just not with the program, with our culture. We've we got to get culturally tuned. We've got to take surveys of our neighborhood, find out what's on people's minds, and, and we've got to address it. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with taking surveys of neighborhood to find out how they're doing. What's wrong is, after you do it, what do you do with that information? That's the problem. Well, Paul, Paul is not saying, you know, I don't just don't, you know, Peter and, and, and John and, and those guys, you know, I think they screwed up. They didn't have a positive approach to the gospel. You know, if we could just change the approach, why then we could win Israel to Christ. Israel didn't believe in Jesus because of a poor presentation of the gospel, see? But that's not Paul's explanation here. Notice his explanation of why people reject Christ. He says in verse 3, or verse 2, God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the past about Elisha, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed the prophets. They've torn down the altars. I alone am left. They're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, what it means is, is that God, first of all, is not going to retract, compromise, or go back on his promise to Abraham. Remember the Abraham? You shall have a seed. So there's always going to be people who believe. So it's not true that, lot, that the whole nation dropped the ball. No, no. There was a lot of Jews, a core of Jews, that did believe. Now the question has changed, isn't it? Now the question moves from, oh, gee, they did a poor presentation of the gospel, to, well, if a minority believed, why isn't the majority believing? Some men could believe. Some men believe. And, of course, this is God's way. And he's focusing on God and his sovereignty. And so in verse 5 he says, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. 
What then? Now watch it. Here's his explanation of the unbelief. Verse 7. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it hasn't obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So who, what, what's the unbelief? It's described as a hardening of the heart. The gospel hardens hearts as well as softens them. And then it says in verse 8 and verse 9, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. And he describes that under the sovereignty of God, this is a greater purpose. But if you look in the margin, if you have a study Bible, you should see a reference to what verse 8 is referring to. Romans 12.8 is a citation out of Isaiah. Now, what we want to do is we want to turn back to Isaiah, chapter 6, where that came from, and see what Isaiah was talking about. So, if you turn back to the Old Testament. In Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. This is a strange commission that God gives His prophet. And just so we remember, what was the role of the Old Testament prophets? Remember as we went into the Old Testament, we said that the Old Testament period involved the discipline of the king upon the nation. The prophets were not social reformers, as liberal theology would have it. They weren't politicians. They weren't people who inspired the masses. The prophets were spokesmen of God that acted legally like prosecuting attorneys. They came to the nation, not in their own name, they came to the nation in the name of the Torah. They came and said, you have violated the commandment of the king, and now you shall be cursed. But before God cursed his nation, grace before judgment, he announced the coming judgment to the nation and the judgments that were to come upon Israel were to come upon Israel because of their violation of the covenant. God is faithful, man isn't. So all during this period, under the kingdom divided and the kingdom declined, was this chastening and repentance, chastening and repentance, chastening and repentance. And during this period of chastening and repentance, that's when Isaiah 6 was written. So let's look at Isaiah 6 and watch what God tells Isaiah to do. Here's this prosecuting attorney, Isaiah 6. And by the way, you'll see verse 3 and 4. That's that famous passage where Isaiah looked up and he saw the throne of God. All right, now God tells him in verse 9, Go and tell this people. And there's sarcasm here. It doesn't come across too, so much in the translation, but it's a really interesting passage when you study the original language. Go ahead, keep on listening, but don't perceive. Keep on looking and don't understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. And then I said, O oh Lord, how long? Until the cities are devastated. 
Now, there's a ministry of the teaching of the Word of God. And it's not one that's popular, and it's not one that is often spoken of. But Isaiah was given the strange commission to preach to the nation in order to blind it, to preach the Word of God in order that it be rejected, to teach the Word of God repetitively so that every time a person would hear the Word of God and go on negative volition toward the Word of God, it would harden their heart. Their negative volition would get stronger. The negative volition would get stronger. The negative volition would get stronger until finally, when the nation got in this state, that was the time for judgment. So Isaiah is to bring about the judgments by hardening men's hearts through the teaching of the Word of God. Now, how and how did Isaiah do this? If you do a statistical check of the preaching of Isaiah, here's what you find. You draw a bar graph. I'm going to draw true bars on this graph, and it's going to tell you the relative frequency with which he preached the first and second advent of the Messiah. Now, by first and second advent, Isaiah didn't divide it that way. By first advent, I mean the suffering servant. And then the second advent, the glorious reigning Messiah. That's the ratio. In other words, for every time that Isaiah mentioned the suffering servant and connected the Messiah with sin, 10 to 15 times he preached the glorious coming of the Messiah that would bring victory to the nation Israel. Now, why is this skewed this way? It is to lead the people down a primrose path. You see, it is to focus. This people, they've gone a negative volition. They didn't understand the preaching of Isaiah in the first place. If they had understood the issue of sin and atonement, they would have understood that it's this that they should pay attention to, the Isaiah 53 kind of passage. But they turned against that. A people who are in unbelief aren't convicted of sin and therefore don't need salvation. So, what you do then is you keep pumping them, pumping them, pumping them, pumping them up with all this great expectations of victory and happiness and so on. Much like today, we have a gospel of universal salvation. Everybody wants to go to heaven, so we're going to talk about heaven, we're going to talk about the good things of God, never talk about anything bad, always talk about the blessings of God, always talk about this and that. Isaiah did the same thing. And the course of his ministry, that kind of a ministry, was designed to harden hearts. Now, that came out in the New Testament. But before we get there, let's turn to Isaiah 30, verse 8. Just as a, another passage in, along the same line to show what Isaiah was doing. Here is what had happened by this period, after this kind of preaching. After you've told people everything's going to be all right, ultimately everything's going to be all right, everything's going to be all right, everything's going to be all right, why do you bother to have a prophet then? So now, in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8, God says to Isaiah, Now go, write it on a tablet before the nation, 
inscribe it on a scroll, that they may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of Jehovah, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak pleasant words and prophesy illusions. A very important passage. This is the arrogance of unbelief to the point where it is now officially reconstructing religion after the flesh. Now, this comes into the New Testament, and it almost caught the disciples. This is so imbued in the nation Israel that Messiah would put everything, everything would be fine, would be pleasant. Not only the unpleasantness of the suffering servant thing, but everything pleasant about the reigning king. Let's turn to what Mary sung. We often read this at Christmas time, to Luke chapter 1. Mary shared the typical Jewish belief of the time. Except, of course, she, being a regenerate believer, understood more about sin and the issue of a Savior. Nevertheless, Mary's Magnificat gives you a sense of what the patriotic Jew looked for in their Messiah. They had never forgotten this picture from Isaiah of the glorious, the reigning Messiah. And so Mary says, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. So at least she understands the saving part. Mary is not unbelieving here. But what I'm pointing out is, look at the emphasis in her Magnificat on the final glory of the Messiah. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel His servant in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever." So as a believer, she understands the plan of history centering on the Abrahamic contract. But this young Jewish girl prophesying of the future sees the Messiah doing all these things in verse 52 and verse 51, but they're future to Mary's time. Though they're in the past tense, like most prophecy, it's past tense because in her vision she sees it as having been accomplished. But in history it has yet to be accomplished. So that gives you a sense of the look, the anticipation of the Messiah. Now, turn, and we're going to go chronologically, so I'm going to skip from Luke to Matthew, then I'm going to come back to Luke. So go to Matthew 16. This is halfway through Jesus' ministry, and now let's see what happens. Here we are again in the middle of a nation, that bar chart that I just drew of the relative frequency of speaking of the suffering servant at Messiah versus the reigning glorious Messiah. Now, in Matthew 16, verse 21, there's a shift in Jesus' career. Now, because people are not coming to Him as Savior, they don't like what they see in Jesus. He isn't quite fulfilling number two over here. And they don't like this. 
because he's laid down the rule. What has Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount done with God's holiness and his righteousness? It is not going to be compromised. And you have to come to deal with that. And they didn't want to deal with that. They wanted pleasant, soothing words, prophesying to us pleasant words, not unpleasant ones. So in Matthew 16, verse 21, when Jesus begins to elevate the frequency, so now, instead of Isaiah's frequency, here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to start more and more on the first advent, and he's going to downplay the second one. So he's going to reverse the balance. So, in Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chiefs, priests, and scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get me behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Rather humbling response. So, you see, even Peter, as a good Jew, he reacted against this shift that happened here. This was not welcome news. So, it goes on, we can go on. Now, let's go to Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke. And you remember the Emmaus Road incident. So, we looked at three points in Christ's life. First, before, while he was a baby, everybody, the anticipation of even of his mother toward what he would do. But then, as time goes on, the first advent and the suffering side gets emphasized more and more. So now in Luke 24, looking at verse 19. This is one of the conversation on the Emmaus Road. And remember, Jesus comes up and he asks them a question and one of them says, you know, what planet have you been on the last five days? You haven't heard what's been going on? And Jesus said, what things? And they said, then the things about Jesus of Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all, this is the third day since these things have happened. And then he describes this story that they didn't believe about the resurrection. But, you see, they couldn't help but think something's wrong here. There's something wrong with this picture of Jesus dying. That's the Messiah. He's not supposed to die. All right. So, so that's the Jewish problem. Jewish unbelief centered on the glory of the reigning Messiah. This was the good thing. And it is a good thing. But the problem is, how do you get there? You know, it goes back to our, our diagram that we've shown over and over of good and evil. You can't have the separation of good and evil unless you have the separation. You can't get out here unless this happens. And what is it that separates good and evil? A judgment. So, you can't get to the good things until you go through the judgment to get rid of the bad things. And the judgment, of course, is the issue of God's uh, judgment through, that he's going to do to separate us, and that raises the issue of salvation. So, in unbelief, the Jews had emphasized, had come because of the natural inclination of the sinful fallen man, they had come to emphasize the good thing, and what they wanted was salvation without the judgment. 
They wanted to have, be an evolutionist spiritually, that we evolve into a higher plane and there's no discontinuity, there's no judgment in the way. They wanted salvation without judgment. But if we remember, what are the two pictures in the Old Testament about salvation? Noah's flood and the Exodus. Were those just salvations? Or were they judgment salvations? They were judgment salvations in both cases. And they were pictures of the ultimate judgment salvation. You can't have salvation without judgment. That is unbelief. And ultimately it's rooted in a deep denial of the being of God. Now we're going to move from all that Jewish unbelief over to Gentile unbelief. And if you turn in your notes to page 83, I want you to look at quotation number 11 and quotation number 12. And then we'll look at, it, at another quote. There's three quotes I want to look at. Two on page 83 and one on page 84. Now, I'll read them, and I want you to look carefully at what is being said. Page 83, bottom of that first big paragraph that begins modern unbelieving responses. <clears throat> Halfway down, where you see the reigning Messiah, Gentiles have claimed that an atoning death is incompatible with what? The love of God. Now, here comes the goo. What has happened, not so much among the Jews, but among the Gentiles, the Gentile form of unbelief, sort of parallel to the Jews, seizes upon the good and pleasant things. And what's the good and pleasant news of the gospel? That God loves. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. So let's take love and let's minimize justice and holiness. And let's just sit there and talk about love all day long. What it is is a contentless word now. There's no integrity behind it. And watch these quotes now. The Gentiles have claimed an atoning death is incompatible with the love of God. God, being a God of love, these liberals reason, does not require a bloody atonement before he forgives. Forgiveness, they insist, can be granted merely on the basis of repentance without any atonement. Thus, the liberal theologian Hastings Rashdall says, quote, that sin ought to be forgiven when there is only sincere repentance is a truth which, like all ultimate ethical truths, must be accepted simply because it's self-evident. Self-evident? Is it really? You see, if sin can be removed merely by repentance, then it implies that no damage has been done in the real objective entity outside. See, repentance doesn't gain forgiveness of sins unless there's a cross that is conditioned. The benefits flow upon repentance. But if there's no cross out there to give the blessing, you can repent all day long and doesn't do a particle because repentance doesn't do what? According to justice. Justice, God's justice means restitution. Where's the restitution in repentance? Repentance doesn't have any restitution. So, repentance doesn't save. 
But here we have a collision. Now here's the gospel. Everybody says, oh, well, there's so many religions in the world. And how can you be so arrogant to say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Again, why bother with gloves when you're handing a 10,000 volt high voltage line? Because the voltage is there. Why are you worried about the way, the truth, and the life? Because God has a character. He has integrity. He has justice. That's why. Doesn't your God? Or is he some lovey flake? We don't have a flake God here. We have a God of integrity. And you come to him on his terms. In Eden, there was only one gate into the garden. Right? And there was only one way to get there. And there's only one way to get into his kingdom. Because we don't define the gate. He does. It's his call, not ours. He didn't ask for a committee. Didn't ask for a democratic vote. Didn't even take a Gallup poll among all of his creation to decide what would be the most pleasant way to be saved. So here we have a liberal who lets it all hang out. This is liberalism. You've got it right. I went and I got this right out of a liberal theologian's quote. And you can see the frustration in his quote. You can, you can feel his emotions, can't you, in that statement? He's frustrated that anybody would he dare to think that you've got to have something besides repentance. Now let's look at another quote. Continue reading that next paragraph. Once it is granted that atonement is no longer required for forgiveness, the death of Christ becomes unnecessary. In fact, the only accomplishment of the death of Christ is its exemplary force to man. It's the death of a martyr. The cross exerts moral influence upon man in some way, liberals believe. It testifies to Christ's love for man and pursuing his mission all the way to the grave. Such a committed soul. Jesus, according to this liberal model, demonstrates sincerity in dying for his convictions. Now, all that may be true. He's died for his conviction, yeah. But that's not the story of Jesus. I mean, a lot of guys died for their convictions. Every martyr in history has died for his convictions. That's to take the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man Savior, and to lower him down on the same plane with all human beings. Now, here's a beauty of a quote. Look at this one. All you have to do, you know, one needs... exponent of unbelief because they're so logically consistent that they, they let it all hang out. It's all there. It's all the dirty linens that are laid on the table. And they're not, a, they're not embarrassed by it. I mean, one of the great services that Dr. Singer here at Princeton is giving us today in America is he's one of the most brilliant anti-Christians that exists. And what is Dr. Singer telling us now? And everybody's upset, and they've got demonstrations at Princeton by all the people in wheelchairs and all the crippled people and handicapped people. And they're all saying, Singer is dangerous. Get him off the faculty at Princeton. What is, what is Singer saying? He's saying, I don't see any difference between the fetus and the baby. So you kill the fetus, kill the baby. Ah, we didn't want to do that, did we? Well, you see, we opened the door, didn't we? So all Singer's doing is taking it one step further. You got a deformed kid, spinal bifid or something? Knock him off. He's not a full person. Kill him. He's actually saying it's a good thing, not that you have permission to do it, 
Singer's position is you have a social duty to do it. It's the bad thing to keep a deformed child alive because it burdens you and it burdens society. A good thing to do is put them and society out of their misery. Kill them. He is officially advocating infanticide. But wait a minute. Pagans have always had infanticide. In the Old Testament, you took your babies to Moloch. They fried them. Paganism has always done this. Just in America, we don't like to speak about that. Well, why not? You want to have unbelief? You want to play unbelief? Let's play unbelief. Real unbelief. Listen to the singer. And that's what I'm saying. See, we like to play. Americans, we tend to be very superficial people. We like to play at things. And so that's what unbelievers like. They like to play. See, they like to play pretending they don't believe the gospel. I don't believe the word of God. I mean, how can you be so stupid? And yet you turn around and have morals. Where do you get that from? You just reduced everything to personal opinion. So maybe I like to blow your head off with a 38. That's my hobby. See how many people I can kill with 38. No, I don't use 45. I use 38. Just want to, that's just, I like that pistol better. So I go shoot people. And that's my personal preference. Hey, it's a free country. Oh, you don't like that? Well, why don't you like that? Well, I think, yeah, but I think the other way. Well, um, but I think this way. Well, so what? I think this way. So now what do we got? And so pay attention to men like Singer. These are, these are our secret allies. They let it all hang out. Now look at this guy. Look at how he deals with Acts 4.12. All of us know Acts 4.12. There is no other name among heaven given among men whereby we may be saved. Look what Rashtal does with it. Our Mr. Liberal. There is none other ideal given among men by which we may be saved except the moral ideal which Christ illustrated by his death of love. Now that's all the goo that you can imagine in a sentence. All the vocabulary. Oh, he's got a death of love. What the heck is a death of love? You know, what is that? It's the, it's the martyr idea. Isn't that inspiring? Every time you see a crucifix, and you think, it's the death of love. Hmm. The guy really was sincere. So that's what liberalism does to the cross of Christ. Now, we said, we began the lesson tonight, why? What does unbelief do here? They have a problem with the justice of God, don't they? In other words, by exaggerating the love of God and diminishing the justice of God, they've deformed God into an idolatrous reconstruction. And then having done that, they can't find a reason for the cross anymore. Well, of course they can't. Not with a God like this. Why, does it, why, if things are really like this, do we need a cross? Let's turn the page, and I'll take you to show how even the evangelicals begin to think this way. Page 84. The idea, this is, this is a Baptist conservative theologian now, I'm quoting. Look at this guy. The idea of reparation, that is restitution, has become questionable today since it seems associated with irrational vengeance. It is true that people today still have a largely unconscious desire to see certain kinds of criminals pay for their crimes, but few people will consciously acknowledge that they believe in a general principle of making reparation. 
And what Humphreys in his book continues on the conversation, you know what he does? We've got to rethink how the gospel is preached. Because our society, our contemporaries, don't believe any longer in the idea of a restitution. Well, what's the problem? Let's think about the diagram here. If the problem is that they've diminished justice, then what do we need to do to preach the gospel? We've got to define justice then. We've got to go back one step and say, all right, we'll come back here and we'll start dealing with the justice of God. We've got to straighten that out. Two plus two isn't five. That's why we're having multiplication problems over here. We haven't got the addition right. So we abandon the multiplication temporarily and we come and we fix up the other, the foundation. Then we go and we keep on preaching the gospel. But what does Humphreys do? What Humphreys says is that the two plus two is five and we'll just go with it. So we'll change the multiplication table to fit that. So we made a mistake over here, so let's make another one. Let's change the gospel. So we'll change it now. You see? It's backwards. It's totally backwards. But that's what's happening. And the point is, if we go to Romans 1, we see the mechanics of how this takes place. So let's conclude in our, tonight by going over to Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Because this verse tells us the dynamics of what's happening here. Why the cross of Christ is not clearly understood. Why people do not want to clearly understand it. And why certain forms of gospel preaching are compromising the truth of the cross of Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. This verse is just loaded. Just loaded with insight. It says, this is a speaking of paganism, a pagan society. Though they know the ordinance of God, who's they? Subject of that verb. All men. doesn't say those who admit they believe in God know the ordinances of God, does it? It says, they, all men. Well, well, I don't believe in God. How can I know the ordinance of God? You know the ordinance of God. Well, I don't believe in God. You know the ordinance of God. Well, I don't believe it. You still know the ordinance of God. How can you say that? Because you're made in His image. And you know the ordinance of God. That's what Paul says here. No compromise. I don't care what you say. You know the ordinance of God. That those who practice such things are worthy of death. They have a sense then of justice. Okay? Why would they believe that those who practice such things are worthy of death if they didn't have a concept of biblical justice? So all men in their heart of hearts do have a concept of justice. Well, you say, well, if they have a concept of justice, why is this happening? Verse 32 explains. All men have a sense of biblical justice in their depths of their heart. They not all, uh, okay, that those who practice it, they, they, same people, not only do these wicked things, but also give hearty approval to them who practice them. I want to break that last sentence down because that's one of those little sentences in the Bible we can read and think we've understood it and we don't understand it. 
So let's look at, let's diagram that sentence out a little bit. Let's see. Huh, it's a permanent marker. Okay. They, subject. Who's the they? All men. Not some men. All. What's the verb? They do those things. And also, what else do they do? They approve them. So, they, verb is do, and the, the idea here is praise or go along with, we'll just put approve. Which verb of those two verbs in that sentence is emphasized by the construction of the sentence? What weight, what verb has the weight in the way that sentence comes out? First one or the second one? Second one. Notice how he prefixes that second verb. They not only do the same, but also they give hearty approval to those who do such things. So the verb that is this is approved. Now, after I've pointed that out, do you feel some discomfort with the logic of that sentence? He's saying they not only do something that is sinful, thought, word, and deed, but they approve it. Now, the first couple of times I went through this, I said, well, wait a minute. Isn't it worse to do it than to approve it? I mean, you could approve it and not do it. You could say, oh, I'll let them do it, but I just don't want to do it. But what he's saying is the act of approving what is wicked is worse than doing it. Now, why is that? Because it's more perverted. When you get to the point of approving that which is evil, what has happened to the conscience and awareness of divine justice? It's been buried. So when you have people involved in reinventing ethics, Paul says that is the end of the pagan chain. That's the signal. There's several signals in Romans 1. Homosexuality being publicly approved is one of the signals. But when you start to have people redefining what is good and evil, that's the end of the chain for paganism. That means the process has got to its ultimate goal. That's the goal of unbelief under Satan's tutelage. So, why then do we have a perverted gospel Look at the mechanics. Men know the justice of God. Their conscience bears witness of the justice of God. How can they live as sinners? If you don't want to be saved, and you don't resolve the problem that way, how else are you going to resolve the problem? Knock out the conscience. If your conscience keeps convicting and keeps bringing this truth up again, 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 again. It makes you uneasy and drives you ultimately to the cross. But since you don't want to come to the cross, then the next thing to do is break, break the red light. You're not going to stop at the light? Break it. Maybe it'll turn green. So that's Romans 1. And that's what paganism in unbelief is doing to the cross. It's the cross presents the issue of divine justice to a conscience that has been largely buried. And when that happens, 
the cross has to be redefined or accepted. And it will be redefined by Humphreys, page 84, and redefined on page 83. On page 83, we found that the pagan mind dismisses the cross of Christ as far as it's being any kind of an atonement. Readily acceptable as, gee, you know, the guy was, died for his beliefs. Hey, three medals on his right side there for that. So the cross is acceptable as long as it only is a testimony to sincerity or something else. But what can't be accepted is that on that cross, work was done before a holy, righteous God for my sin. That is the gospel. And that is what separates this goo words about Jesus and the cross and all the rest of it and as the New Testament presents the cross. And unbelief on one side, belief on the other. Now, beginning next week, we're going to deal with what really happened on the cross. Now we've gotten rid of all the crud. We're going to deal with the doctrines that describe what God was doing in that period of darkness. Our Father, we're thankful again tonight for your scripture, for the truths of the gospel. May we in our generation be faithful not to, by your grace, not to get deflected, not to get deceived, not to leave the path of truth, but to constantly go back to the Scriptures. For in thy light shall we see light. In Jesus' name, amen. It's because I'm trying to um, emphasize that every aspect of the life of Christ repels as well as attracts. And uh, the cross repels, and, and we want to get that clear. So when we get now into propitiation and we get into... Uh, substitutionary blood atonement and what's going on that it'll be it makes sense only if you first have a biblical view of God the cross doesn't make any sense in any deep way other than just a trivial um, another one of the 108 martyrs that died in history kind of thing okay is there any uh, anybody want to raise a question or something yes Bonnie Okay, the question is, how do you balance the fact that every time we talk about the gospel or, or preach the word, there is a danger, there's a real danger of driving people away from it. Uh, I think the responsibility there is that we, we don't do it foolishly and people are driven away because of us. But if people are driven away because of the truth, then they're going to be driven away. And we have to leave it in the Lord's hands. Um, it doesn't mean that we stop loving them because until... Uh, a person dies in unbelief, there's still hope. There's always hope until the last breath. So, 
uh, and God reaches out. I mean, think of Jesus in Jerusalem. Uh, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I, you know, I would have gathered you under me like a mother hen, her chicks. Uh, so, and one of the great passages, by the way, that shows motherly love is anal- analogous to God's love. Um, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself, if you look at the Gospels, every, each of the four Gospels, you could diagram his ministry. It goes up, it reaches a popular level, and it goes down. He's, he preaches, he's open, he does miracles, and then he just turns it off and just say, okay, that's enough. And he concentrates on edifying, teaching, and, and um, discipling the people who have come along. Um, so we have a good model in that. It's, I, would just, I would just say, uh, let's pray to be sure that it's not our foolishness and carnality that drive people away, but that if it is the Lord himself, then the Lord will drive them away. But the fact that the person keeps coming back tells you that there's a tug. And as long as the tug is there and they keep seeking you out, you know, you, you be gracious. You don't, have to, you don't have to be ugly. We're not talking about being ugly and nasty. We can be gracious and truthful. But we have to, in the back of our minds, remember that every time the gospel goes out, it is dividing. Because after all, what is, when is the church age going to be over? When the division is over. So, as history progresses, the plan of God outworks and works toward its goal. And we know what the goal is. It's, it's rather horrifying that the human race will be eternally divided. And what is it that divides? It's the gospel. So, yes, it does. And it's very hard. I don't think in the ministry there is a harder thing to do than to preach or officiate at a funeral of an unbeliever. And in the ministry, you're often required to do that because it's a a loved one of of a person who is a believer. And you really have to, you know, skate all over the brink on on an unbelieving funeral. But, I mean, you don't want to sit there and, and, and nuke them. But on the other hand, you certainly want to present the issue and warn people that, you know, hey, a life ended here. You know, this person had no more chance. And, you know, you're still breathing. So you still got a chance. So somehow you have to work the gospel in and do it in such a way that it's edifying to everybody, but not yet so that it's compromised. And this very serious thing that's happened, the death of an unbeliever, that, that just is, you know, we, we don't even talk about it. So that, that's where it gets uchi. And I, I've always felt very uncomfortable in that situation. And something has been bothering me for some time, and a couple of weeks ago I said, oh, I really would like to bring this up. I'm not sure how to phrase it, and I'm probably no closer to it now. But uh, I've been bothered for some time about um, our presentation of the relationship between forgiveness and atonement. Because it seems like we hear so much about the forgiveness of God and He loves and forgives. Yeah, I, I agree. This the question was um, that 
in presenting the gospel, uh, it's often observed that the forgiveness of God is given quickly, but, but torn away from its root in the atoning work of Christ and separated. And the problem is you can't separate them. And I know why it happens. I mean, I've, I've read books about it. I mean, the, the Humphreys book is a good one. The reason it happens is because as the sense of God's justice diminishes and gets very faint in our society at whole, as whole, um, the, the, the witnessing to the gospel is increasingly difficult because the gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, in the 19th century, the saying always was that, uh, I forgot who it was that coined this expression, but they said a bartender in 1850 knew more theology than the average evangelical churchgoer in 1950. And it wasn't saying that the bartender was necessarily a believer. It was just that it was in the air. My wife was just telling me how she was reading something about Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln didn't become a Christian until late in life. But he was imbued with a lot of Christian viewpoint earlier in his life. Well, where did he get that from? Not because he consciously became a Christian. It was just in the air. The problem today is it's not in the air anymore. Let me tell you an interesting story. Uh, my wife and I know this couple who, who have lead very interesting lives. And they always seem to be into something unusual, some unusual celebrity concept or somebody knows. And they ran across this uh, Hebrew Christian who has a ministry in Washington, D.C. And the man has been led to, to start this ministry to congressmen, senators, and so forth. And he, he struggled for, for many years, apparently, in figuring out, well, how do I witness to these people? And the Lord led him to emphasize the Ten Commandments. And congressmen always like to have their pictures taken and so on. So his, one of his methods of, of getting into their offices with the gospel is to say, hey, I've got a, a plaque I want, to, um, I want to present to Senator so-and-so. And the photographer will be there and so on. Of course, this is a, this is a photo op opportunity. So all of them, you know, they'll drop everything to go get their photograph in the paper. And he'll present them with the Ten Commandments and say something about when your leadership is inspiring, blah, 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 blah. And present the Ten Commandments. Let, the, let those Ten Commandments... Um, work on them, you know. And he says one of the interesting responses he gets when he does this is the guy will look through it. Oh, look, well, you got me there, got me there. And uh, but for all the facetiousness, they are reading it, and he has sometimes opportunities to follow this up. Well, he went on to say that one of the mind-blowing experiences he had doing this was he, he had in his office, he had the Ten Commandment plaques piled up. And some uh, congresswoman, who I don't know whether she was a senator or uh, uh, a representative, forgot which one, but she has a Ph.D. from Harvard. Very well-known, apparently. He didn't tell the name. Very well-known woman, very much of a leader in her party. Walked into his office for something turned around and looked at the pile of plaques. She said, what are those? PhD from Harvard. What are those? He said, oh, they're the Ten Commandments. Oh, yeah? I heard about those and never seen them. Now, think of what, that, what that's telling us. Think of what that means. 
Here is a woman, middle-aged woman, in a leading political position of our country, who daily is constructing legislation that we have to live under, has her doctorate from Harvard, and has never seen the Ten Commandments. Yeah, adding to a legal system that originated in British common law that was grounded on the Ten Commandments. Now that's where we are, folks. And that's why, to get back to Ginny's point, the Gospel, it's hard to witness clearly to the Gospel. We can repeat words. And unfortunately, I believe, because there's a big debate, you know, about lordship salvation and the, for easy believism, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that is the our hearts being regenerated? Do people understand what the gospel is? I believe the gospel is it's, it's belief, but you've got to have content to the thing, and you can't believe if you don't understand. And if we, we can create social pressures on people to believe, you know, that all the kids believe, my girlfriend believes, my boyfriend believes, and gee, I better believe. And so we create this peer pressure kind of thing, and they say, oh yeah, I accepted Jesus. Haven't got a clue what that means. Not a clue. But they've been conned into it by peer pressure. And I think we have to be very, very careful to give people space to reject or to believe. Don't force people. Don't create a pressure. Because what you may do is create a facade. Now you've got a bigger problem. Now you've got somebody who thinks they might have believed and, quote, this doesn't work. And then you have somebody like Bradley here running from New Jersey that dumps the whole thing as an apostate. So, preaching the gospel, I think we increase, if we never trust the Holy Spirit to do the illuminating work, we sure have to now. And to, to rely on Him, Lord, how to, give me wisdom. How do we get across the basics? Because the gospel, remember, is an answer to a basic question. The question is, how can I be right with God? And if the person hasn't even asked the question, or doesn't, is so screwed up and, and raised in such a perverted culture, they, they don't even have the framework to ask the question. So, yes? Do you think by emphasizing the forgiveness part of it, you may be, we may be giving the unbeliever um, a shallow yeah. concept of yeah. what it means. They're not going to get full recognition that somebody had to pay the price yeah. for that sin. Yeah, I believe that. It wasn't just God's being permissive. Yes, uh, yes. That's the key. Somebody had to pay the price, and I don't think we... No. And, and, the, and paying the price itself doesn't make sense if first you don't have the biblical God clearly un, in mind and in discussion. And uh, yeah, you're right that by saying God forgives you, God loves you, God loves He does. We're not minimizing the love of God here with the atonement. Because it, it exalts the love of God. It means that God loved us so much that He did all that for us. So, the love of God is... You can't compromise the love of God here by, by maximizing His holiness. Because whatever... You build the holiness up, you build the justice up, you build a barrier between God and man that's sin. You've built up love. Because love was big enough to say, we've got to do something about this problem. And I initiate, God says, I initiate from my side, I initiate the process of getting over this barrier. But the barrier's got to be there. And Jenny's right that forgiveness is cheap today, and it becomes cheap 
because there's no standard in back of it. Forgive you for what? Remember what David said in Psalm 51? Against whom and whom alone did he sin? God only. So he was convicted of his sin. He wasn't saying that he didn't do bad things to Bathsheba or her husband. He's not saying that. He's saying on the hierarchy of scale, as bad as this was to kill this man and commit adultery with his wife, far worse than all that, I sinned against God. Now today, we can't even get the murder and adultery straight, leave alone getting the righteousness before God straight. Now, so that we don't walk out of here totally pessimistic tonight, the encouraging thing is, think of what a society Paul faced. The New Testament people faced a society more pagan than ours. And God grew the church. And he grew it with, with the gospel. And if you think about the book of Acts, when the gospel was preached, it caused a controversy. Remember? There were rocks thrown, people put in jail. Now, I'm not saying look forward to that, but I'm just saying that the gospel was preached so effectively that it created a response, positive or negative, but there was a response to it. What, what so happens today is you put your best foot forward and it's just bleh, no response either way. You know, hey, you alive, breathing? Let's take your vitals here. Um, there's just no response. So, we live in a dark age. A dark age. And people use Christian words like love of God. And you, you heard, you, that's why I put those three quotes in there. But we're not communicating. This is happening. But not this. And all I can say is, it's just God has to give us wisdom. Us in our relationships, you know, with this man you're talking about, Bonnie, uh, Bunny, that it's, it's, you know, whoever we're talking to. Um, you know, God, let me see where they're coming from and engage where they're coming from. And let me, if this route doesn't work, let me try another route. Um, so that's, that's involved. But you can see uh, the conversation tonight, I think, has been on the mark that the, we, we use the cross, we see the cross, we talk about the cross, and yet when you get down to the nub of things, it's a very hard thing to discuss clearly to a person, the average American today. I was led to the Lord in a very sloppy way. People talk to me about God loves you and this and that. Yeah, he does. But it, my sin wasn't really made clear. I mean, it was just by the grace of God that I trusted. It was a, it's an anemic gospel presentation that I received. I'm not blaming the person who did it. I, I'm just saying it was just anemic. And if you think, the best thing I know to do sometimes is read a little church history and read what some of the great guys like George Whitfield, John Wesley, read about how they preached. Yes?
that in our own heart to realize that, you know, that's what makes the forgiveness so much greater when we realize <laughs> the extent of our sin. That it was that repulsive to God that it took Yeah, I, I, uh, you're right. The, the cross of Christ compels uh, an arrogant rejection or a humble acceptance. Because you can't accept that kind of a gift unless you have already convinced that you need it. And to be convinced that you need that kind of an atonement tells you that, yeah, God has opened my heart to my sin. And so you're, you're humbled. I mean, you don't walk around and say, my good works did it. You, you know, you're so far away from thinking your good works did anything. Because if your good works did it, he wouldn't have to die. Okay, well, our time's up tonight, and next week we'll uh, get further into the atonement itself.